Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had yeah. been, been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. And he went and talked to Junior Johnson, and Junior needed a tire changer, and he convinced Junior that I was this great tire changer that he could he should hire me. And keep, keep in mind, I never changed one. Leo says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll keep turning that engine around every week, and this car, too, until it loses. And I happen to walk up in the NASCAR hauler maybe to get a schedule or something. I hear Rusty up in the front. And he says, you know they're cheating. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. And Steve, i got to ask you. Hello. Are you the person that has the Darlington commemorative issue of Grand National Scene on eBay. Have you seen that? No, I'm not the person, my boy. <laughs> there is at least one issue of the Darlington Grand National Scene on eBay. It closes tonight at about 10.30 Eastern right now. 
it's at $15.50 with $4 shipping. So basically, oh God, 20, 20, bucks. 20 bucks for one of these issues on eBay, and you can get it on Patreon for a little bit cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> Listen up. By the way, how do you do eBay? <laughs> well, I do not know. I have never sold anything on eBay, and I certainly didn't sell that. But, you know, hey, that's the free enterprise system, and if People want to get rid of their scenes that way. More power to them. Yeah. Isn't exactly, I think, within the spirit of why we did it. But <laughs> hey, capitalism is king, baby. <laughs> Indeed. Steve, this week we have the first part of my interview with Andy Petrie. I'm telling you, that was another great interview because... He won't hold back. No, he won't hold anything back. Well, he did a couple of times. and We'll, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But he talks about breaking into Winston Cup as a tire changer with Junior Johnson and Daryl Waltrip. I did not know that he had ever worked for Junior. I didn't either. Yeah. I didn't either. That's how he broke into the sport after, you know, kind of coming up through the ranks right, at Hickory right. and tracks in that area. He obviously played a big part in Dell Jarrett's career. He talks about that. But he actually broke into the Winston Cup ranks with Junior Johnson and Daryl Waltrip. And then he made the move over to Phil Parsons's skull team, the number 55 team with right. – the Jackson brothers, Leo right. and Richard. And <laughs> I got to be honest, it was kind of cool because I asked him about becoming a crew chief with Phil and Richard and Leo. But then I asked about the 1988 race at Talladega. And as soon as those words started coming out of my mouth, Andy had this great big old grin break out over his face. And he, <laughs> you knew immediately that there was a story behind that grin. Oh, I have no doubt about it. Well, let's just say that that car was apparently... Uh, what do you think now? Uh, let's <laughs> see. What's the best way to put it? Gee. Let's just say <laughs> it was apparently very innovative. That's a good word. <laughs> so it was very innovative. And then he talks about going over to work with Harry Gant on the Skull Bandit team, the number 33 team. And then Andy talked about that, just that magical run with Harry Gant in September of 1991. Yeah, four races in a row, starting with the Southern 500. Yes. And then, Steve, in our second segment, we're going to be talking about the May 17th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene and a controversial finish at the old Nashville Fairgrounds racetrack. I know that's hard to imagine <laughs> at Nashville because that track, kind of seemed to attract those kinds of finishes. Oh, yeah, more than once. <laughs> but this one had Kelly Yarbrough in victory lane and Richard Petty, Kyle Petty, and Bobby Allison Fuman at the end. They were not happy campers. At no, all. because they did not believe that Kelly Yarbrough won that race, and they got a good case, by the way. They felt that Kel was a lap or two, at least a lap or two yeah. down. So, yeah, we'll be talking about that in our second segment. And also, in this issue, there is a battle royale <laughs> <laughs> that begins in the letters to the editor section, Steve. Oh, it's something it, else it's to behold. <laughs> you think people get bad on social media? Who? This bunch of letters to the editor really kicked off a firestorm. Well, this is old school social media. Exactly. <laughs> Steve, the Darlington Grand National Scene continues to pay off dividends for us. New Patreon support this week from Kyle Goodman, Fred Rosado, Wes Bozard, and Nancy Doster. And also increased support from Sean Brennan, Jeffrey Besta, and Tommy Witt. And Tommy... I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I spent, I guess, Friday and some of Saturday and a little bit of yesterday addressing mm -hmm. some of these envelopes. And I've told you about that. And sure. all total, we're probably going to have 75 to 100 envelopes going out to different people. That's great. And on Patreon, I had addresses for some people, but not all of our Patreon supporters. And I emailed Tommy Witt. And I said, you're one of our Patreon supporters, and I want to make sure that you get one of these Grand National Scene issues. If you want one, he emailed me back, and he said, thank you for checking on that. I thought that I had updated my profile, but I did not. And to show you how much I appreciate you checking up on that, he increased his support $10 a month. Attaboy, Tommy. So that yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah. That was very cool. So, again, 
Grand National Scene commemorative issue that we did with Darlington. Do $5 a month or more, and you will receive one of these just awesome commemorative issues, and also at least one classic issue of Winston Cup Scene. So when you send in your support, let me know a favorite driver, favorite track, include your address, and I'll get these papers out to you as soon as I can. And the Darlington issues are a limited run, by the way. They are a limited run. There will be no more of this particular issue. Once these are gone, they're gone, right. period. So don't go to eBay. <laughs> <laughs> Do not go to eBay. Help us out. Save money. Help us out. Support this podcast, and we will send you your newspaper. So you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. And also, if you would rather just do a one-time show of support and not necessarily receive any of the benefits. Now, if you send us a million dollars via PayPal, I could imagine we could probably hook you up with a Grand National Scene. So, <laughs> you know, if you want to go that route, that's fine. That address would be paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. And as I say every week, your support helps make this podcast happen. Your support helped make the Grand National Scene issue happen. And we truly, truly, truly do appreciate it. Andy, you started racing around the Hickory area. At what point did you and Del Jarrett and Jimmy Newsom get hooked up to start a race team? Yeah, that was in probably 77, and it was, I was still in high school, and I'd kind of conned Jimmy Newsom, a good friend of mine, into building a car together. Yeah. Because uh, I just I couldn't build one by myself. I wanted to, I really wanted to race. I wanted to drive. I wanted to be a you know be a race car driver. And you know, growing up within you know shouting distance of the Hickory Speedway. I had the bug really bad, and so <laughs> yeah. I kind of, like I said, conned Jimmy into building this thing together, knowing that, you know, I told him, you know, we'll take it up the track, and whoever can run the fastest will be the, whoever can drive it the best will be the driver kind of thing, knowing I was going to be that guy, right? So we uh, we started building that thing in, I think it was 77, and worked, uh, you know, nights on it. We had a, Jimmy had a tire shop, and we worked in there at night uh, in that little shop, and they had to pull it back out for the daytime so they could yeah. do tires, and then we'd work on it at night. Took months and months to get it built, and you know, trying to figure all this stuff out when you don't know anything, right? I was I aggravated Tommy Houston. He was uh, <laughs> he was you know in Hickory there, not too far from us, and I would aggravate him to death. I would go up to his shop and you know ask a million questions about how to do all these things, and then I'd go back and work for three or four nights, and then yeah. I'd come back. Yeah. And John Settlemyer also, yeah, he worked for my. My grandfather in the Chevrolet dealership in Newton, and um, he also raced in the Sportsman Series at Hickory against Tommy Houston. So they, and he built his own car. So I would use those two guys to try to figure out how to do all these things. And and in that one, where I six eight months span of time, I learned a lot about a race car from those two guys. After driving like you did, how did you get started down the path of becoming a crew chief? Well, I never really drove. See, uh, the way that worked out, we got Jimmy and I got that car finished to a point we needed an engine, and we had been begged, barring everything, trying to get it done. We were just poor. You know, we didn't yeah. have any money. And so uh, Dale Jarrett just shows up with Ned one night at the tire shop when we were working on it and interested in what we were doing, and Dale wants to drive, you know, and like, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be the driver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I was kind of surprised that he even was interested in that because he was a like a four-sport athlete in high school yeah. and figured he was going to carry that on, you know. But he really wanted to race, and so they made a proposition that if, if we let him drive that car, they would provide enough money to buy a motor for it. Okay. Which is our only path yeah. to success, yeah. really, yeah. Yeah. at that point. So we, I reluctantly agreed to that because I really wanted to get it on track and see what we had done and, you know, race it. And, that, you know, looking back on it, that's really what set my career path. Now, you showed me a picture right before we started mm-hmm. recording, and you said that it's a picture of that car mm-hmm. taken the day after your first race with DJ, and that car looks too nice to well, be to it, be the day it, after it, a race at Hickory. <laughs> it looks nice, but that it, it was some fairly crude fabricating skills that we uh, you know built that with. We did we did hire somebody to build the, and weld the roll cage and the important parts of it. But right. um, you know the paint job looked good, and we had a nice lettering job. But it was uh, it wasn't all that nice. Were you content watching not from really, the pits? Not really. Or I mean, were I, you still wanting to drive? Oh yeah, I mean you know, everybody. Yeah. 
you know, wants to drive, be a driver. I yeah. really did. And, but, but like I said, it set my career path, that particular circumstance. And I've really never regretted it. I mean, I, I did get a chance to drive yeah. later, not, yeah. not in any full season or any, yeah. any like official way, but I did get to drive enough to scratch that itch. <laughs> yeah. What time frame did you work with DJ and Jimmy? Okay. Just a couple of years. That was like that 77, 78, I guess season. Okay. And, um, the first year we, you know, we, we actually, we borrowed money. We get, you know, Tom Pistone, I can't, I cannot thank him enough. He was, he was one of the guys that was key to us even being able to get to the track. Tiger Tom. He, Tiger Tom. Yep. Yeah. Because he, he gave us an open account to buy parts and stuff. Nah, like that's that big. And we couldn't pay him and we could not wow. pay him till the end of the year. Yeah. We had to sell the car at the end of the year to pay him. Hmm. And he never stopped us from getting anything. I mean, yeah. I, I still thank him to this day. He's such such a good guy. But he, I could walk in there if I needed a control arm or I needed a ball joint. He just I sign right here, you know. <laughs> and we yeah. ended up selling the car and paying him. Then we built another one the next year. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think we had to do about the same thing. <laughs> we sold it at the end of the year. But um, then Dale went on to do some other other things. And my life was kind of getting complicated. I was having kids, and you know, it was starting to be. You know, life was happening to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do from basically the early 80s until you hooked up with Richard and Leo Jackson? Yeah, that, that, that little period of time I was um, – I had, had started running a service station for a doctor, okay. an eye doctor in town. I was working at a tire store for Jimmy, and then this opportunity came up. Oh, okay. So I was running that. I actually had Dale Jarrett working for me. He was did you gas. really? He was pumping gas. And I was working oh, on wow. cars in the, okay. you know, in the bay out there and just kind of running this service station. And we did it for a better part of a year. And Dale was driving for Carlos Johnson and Sportsman and doing some – and I was helping them. But um, Well, see, that's where you yeah. missed your opportunity. If you just scheduled DJ to work on Saturday that's right. nights, good. Yeah. Oh, that would have that wouldn't have worked. But, but uh, yeah, so we did that for about a year, and then then the eye doctor sold that that property to the county. They put there's a community center there now, so that just kind of ended that. Okay, and I need a job. Okay, so I knew what I wanted to do. I want to work on cars. I want to be in racing, and I I convinced Ned Jerry. This is another one that went out on limb for me. I convinced him to. Helped me get a job in in to you know NASCAR and in, into the big time, and he went and talked to Junior Johnson, and called kind of a favor I guess. And Junior needed a tire changer, and he convinced Junior that I was this great tire changer that he could he should hire me. And keep keep in mind, I never changed one. I did not know that you'd ever worked for Junior. Yeah, I did in the nineteen eighty one wow. season. They it was probably June of eighty one. Okay, and um. They'd had some issues with pit stops, and he wanted to change one of the changers. And so they hired me to change rear tires on Daryl Waltrip's car in 1981. Now, what was it like making that jump from Hickory to Winston Cup, having never changed a tire for a championship winning team? Yeah, they are leading the points, (laughs) right? So here we go, and I'm riding in the truck with Henry Benfield. Well, was, that's a story yeah, that in was itself. Another, that's a whole podcast right there. <laughs> but we get out to uh, – Strap in, boy. <laughs> yeah. So we, we ride out uh, – I'll have to ride the truck out to Riverside. That's where we're going to end up now. I think we raced first in College Station, Texas. It was going to be my first time changing tires, but we had a problem with the cylinder head leaking or something right on yeah. the very first run, and we didn't even make a stop. Fell out of the okay. race right away. Yeah. So we go in the truck out to Riverside, and um, so we sit on the pole out there. And everything's backwards the way you change tires yeah, out there. Yeah. But it doesn't matter to me. I've never done it anyway, right? So <laughs> it's all so the me. first time you changed tires was at Rivers. Really? Riverside. And it, it was completely practiced. backwards. Not, but it didn't matter. I didn't know how to do it anyway. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so, so we yeah. go, and I'll tell you, I was so nervous. I can't tell you how. Yeah. I mean, I was riding in that truck all the way out there and thinking about how many. I mean, I changed a million tires in my mind driving out there in that yeah. truck. And if I screw up, they're going to oh, leave yeah. me here. Right. Here I am. I got my <laughs> wife's pregnant with my son. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot riding on this. Yeah. But we um, somehow we stumbled through it and, and ended up winning that race. Did and, you really? Yep. Yeah. And um, so you won your first yeah. ever. Yep. Yeah. Well, sure besides. Tim Brewer was the front tire changer. Junior was actually the Jackman. You know, Jeff Hammond was the official Jackman back then, but yeah. he had taken that weekend off to go get married. Okay. And so Junior was back on the Jack for my so first race. So your, your first race, yeah. you're on a good night, man. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to step over pit wall, much less <laughs> actually change a tire. It worked out, but I was nervous. I'll tell you, people talk about pressure. That was pressure. 
Wow. Now, how long did you wind up doing that? Just that season. Uh, okay. We, we won the championship and went to New York first year that that ever happened. That was yeah. neat. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then after that was when the kind of the relationship started. I, I went to Daytona. Junior wanted to put his full-time – I was just basically a tire changer. He wanted to put his full-time guys back on that yeah. pit, pit crew. and, and they, But he did bring me to Daytona just in case things didn't work out. I was kind of on standby around yeah. there, and that's where I met Johnny Hayes. Okay. And um, they were doing a thing with Phil Parsons in what was then the first year of the Budweiser Tour, which turned into the Bush right. Series yeah. next year. Yeah. But yeah. So he asked me if I wanted to come help them on that, that team. And they were working out of Harry Gant's shop in Taylorsville. Okay. And I, I had a job. I was a battery salesman. That was my kind of my full time yeah. job. And I, I would take the you know the time I had off. I'd go down to Harry Gant's shop and help help them work on that car. And we raced it in that series. So that's eventually how you got hooked up as the crew chief. I yeah. Guess, what happened there? Phil, uh, we formed a little cup team that ran half the races with Benny Parsons the next year. Oh, okay. When we used okay. that, that that group that was in that that Bush Series team yeah. as the nucleus of that and. Uh, and that's when, you know, I met Leo Jackson. He was kind of, I guess he was basically the crew chief at that point. I don't know how, what his actual title was. And we all worked in a shop in Denver and, you know, just raced Benny in about 15 races a year. And we did that for quite a few seasons. You actually started out as Phil Parsons' crew chief. That's the first crew chief opportunity Your, your first was, crew chief yep. gig. So, yeah. so when Benny left, he, he went to replace Rick, or, uh, Tim Richmond at Rick Hendricks in, I think it was 87 season. And so Phil Parsons was then driving for us, and we had formed basically a full-time team then. And Leo offered me the opportunity to be his crew chief. And okay. I think it was probably in mid-season of 87. And so that we did that in 87 and 88, full 88 season, I was Phil's crew chief. Now, what was your reaction to that? I had been working towards it. You know, my goal okay. was to get there. I was a just a mechanic and tire guy on, you know, on the team and – and just working towards, I really wanted to be a crew chief and trying to take on more and more responsibility. And, and, and Leo finally noticed and, and gave me the opportunity. So you go in 1988 and you and Phil win at Talladega. Um, <laughs> as soon as I say that, you break into this yeah. grin. There's got to be a story. So no, what it, not really. I mean, we we had a really, really good team back then. And we look back on it, we probably should have done even more. Yeah. We, we should have won Charlotte. I believe we had a pretty good car a winning car there that year and, and ended up getting a little bit of a crash but um we, we finished third in the daytona 500 first race of 88 and then we uh we go to talladega and we learned a few things and oh, we we had a really okay really good car there <laughs> and uh okay so hey the statute of limitations has long <laughs> since passed it's been 31 years what'd you learn well we, what'd you have on that car <laughs> let's just say back then it was a lot more fun <laughs> Being a crew chief, you had a lot more latitude oh. on things, and you could, you know, that, that's where I really learned how. At that point, you had to learn how to play the game if you were going to be competitive. I, I, you know, okay, I, I was a new crew chief, but I, I noted, you know, you, you're racing against crew chiefs like Tim Brewer and Tony yeah. Glover and all these guys. You know, they yeah. they're pretty creative. You know, Larry McReynolds, those guys. Oh. So I had to learn how to be creative with them. Now, you can't dangle that carrot out there. You can't just leave it hanging. Well, there's just, it's not yeah. one thing. I mean, it's just yeah. the way we pushed things back then is, was so much different. They had rules, they had height rules, they had these right. rules. But it, it was not so much how, if you just went by the rule, you, you would just watch those guys drive around you and laugh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You had to yeah. learn how to use the, how they enforced them. You had to play to the enforcement. Okay. You know? All right. So it was, it was fun back then. There was a lot of creative things we worked on and, and that carried on through really up until the late 90s, even. So in 1989, you moved over and became Harry's crew chief. And you said that you had raced out of his shop before. How did that move happen? Yeah, I was – at that point, Harry was driving for, you know, the Hal Needham team, and Travis Carter was the crew chief. And that they had kind of hit a wall. They weren't running very yeah. good at all. And so Harry was going to leave there and go somewhere else. And – U.S. Tobacco and Skull really wanted to keep him because yeah. he, they'd built a franchise around him. Oh, yeah. Obviously. He was the brand. Yes, he was yeah. some. So they wanted to keep him, even though the performance had fell just completely in the basement. Um, so Leo stepped up and said, hey, I'll, I'll form a team, and I'll move it to Asheville where I can keep more of an eye on it because he lived there and 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 run him if Skull sponsor him. You know? and he convinced Harry to do that because Harry had a lot of confidence in Leo. And okay. So, then Leo moved me from 
Denver up to Asheville, and we built that team up there with some of the guys that had been on the, you know, the Phil Parsons team and some of the guys that had been there in Denver. And yeah. we hired new ones and just built a little team up there in Asheville. Now, what was it like working with Harry? Because you're not going to outwork Harry. <laughs> you, that's just not going to happen. No. What was it like working with him? It's intimidating a little bit because he was a hero of mine. Having grown okay. up at Hickory Speed Bay okay. and all yeah. that, yeah. and he was he was the man up there, and you know, and I was a young kid, and he's this old veteran driver that was, I mean, really a hero, and so the relationship was a little bit kind of that way, where he he treated me like the kid, and I, uh, <laughs> yeah, it took a little bit of time to get respect and all, and earn it, you know, I had to yeah. earn his respect, but but it happened fairly quick, you know, we won we won our fifth race together, and. um seemed like after that that it, we kind of jailed pretty well. 1991, halfway through the season, you hit a pretty rough patch where you finished 23rd at Daytona, you're 26 at Pocono, 39th at Talladega, 28th at Watkins Glen. You get a 6th at Michigan, but then you're 19th at Bristol. What was going on? Was it just bad I, racing know, luck? I, or? For some reason, I can't remember all those bad ones. <laughs> I remember the good ones from 91. But, okay. Right. Uh, yeah, it was – I'm guessing that we just you know, it just goes that way. Bad luck. I know that Bristol, especially the night race, was always our Achilles heel. Okay, it seemed like we crashed every single time. I don't think we ever finished one when I was with Harry without crashing at some point. Yeah. So that was, a, I'm sure, a rough night for us. Um, we had some issues with durability. I think with some ball joints were, bad, you know, we had a bad run of those. And there's a couple of things I can remember giving us some problems. But we were experimenting with some other things that year that turned out to really help us later. Um, we, we did win at Talladega on fuel mileage, which Harry was amazing at that. One of the best on oh, yeah, fuel yeah. mileage ever. Um, but we hadn't really run good enough to win. We'd been working on, like I said, some chassis things. Uh, namely, we were working on the rear housings where we were putting camber in them. And we were the first ones to do it. And it wasn't really showing up at the track that much. And we could, we could kind of see the performance. It was better, but we hadn't gotten up there where we could win one. And then – the engine guys were working on a new package, which we'd got behind on. Yeah. Like I said, back then, there was, it was a yeah. lot of creative things going on. So they, <laughs> yeah. these guys were welding up cylinder heads. It would take weeks and weeks and weeks to weld them, to put a, you know, a half inch or three-quarters of an inch of, of material on them and then wow. angle okay. mill them. And it, you know, we were making like 20 more horsepower with that kind of head. Well, we finally got our first set at Darlington in 1991. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah. So the, it really a lot of things came together for us. Like I said, the housings we were starting to put camber in them and putting a little more each week until we'd finally really gotten to a point where it's helping a lot. And then the motor deal. And um, I remember sitting out there behind the hauler with Harry, and I said, you know, we've been a one race, you know, win a year team for this has been the third year, right? Eighty nine, ninety. This is ninety one, yeah. and we'd won one race. I says, if we're ever going to be a real contender, we got to start winning more than one race. Oh, okay. All you right. Know. Now that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, this is a conversation we had at Darlington yeah. before the race. Wow. I sure wish I'd have had it sooner than that. <laughs> we didn't lose one for a while after that. <laughs> and that's what was so amazing, looking at the season stats. You have that really rough patch, and then between Bristol and Darlington, it was like the light switch went on. You mentioned the engine stuff. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the chassis stuff with the cambered rear end and all that kind of thing. That was like literally like turning the light switch on. I yeah, mean, because that was a complete Darlington turnaround. Was always a place for us to get healed up, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Harry yeah. was so good yeah. there. We could go there with just about anything and be competitive enough to to, to scare a win. But then when we show up at this stuff, this was this was really a turning point for us. We win that one. Um, you know, and Harry's just got so much confidence. I think he even maybe had won the Xfinity race that same weekend. I don't, I can't yeah. remember how it all worked out, but well, he won the four straight yeah. races, and then in that mix, he also won, I believe, three straight Bush yeah, races. I don't think he lost anything. Yeah, that period. But so we go to Richmond. Then after that, we, I'd had a short track car built for Richmond, and you know, Harry was so you know impressed with that car, he wanted to take that one to Richmond. He wanted to take the, the Darlington. We run Darlington okay, the week yeah. before. And I said, well, you know, we can get it turned around. We had a pretty small team, but we could work some extra hours. We'll get the thing turned around. But he wanted to run that same engine, too, because we didn't have another one. I mean, and it was pretty special. So yeah. we, we ended up, Leo says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll keep turning that engine around every week and, uh, and this car, too, until it loses. So that was the same car. Same car and engine. But, wow. Okay, so we, we go to Richmond with it. Like I said, it wasn't a short track car, yeah. but he loved it so much yeah. that we took it. 
And wow. uh, we didn't dominate by any means, but he figured out some way by the end of that race to get by Davey Allison and, and win it. I have this very cool memory. That was my very first year in the sport. I was working for a, a little magazine that a guy had started up, and I had conned my way into the pace car at Martinsville. I was riding mm-hmm. in the pace car yep. with Elmo Langley, and we're sitting there in turn three, and Harry gets caught up in that accident pretty late in the race, and Elmo is just sitting there, and he's just chomping on those little bite-sized <laughs> candy bars. And he's, I mean, we're having ourselves a big time yeah. in the air conditioning and all that, eating the little candy bars, and Harry gets in that accident, and Elmo's like, well, there goes that wind streak. <laughs> <laughs> What do you remember about that accident? I thought the same thing. I, we dominated that one, too. I mean, Harry had this little way that he went. He didn't always qualify out front, very seldom in the front five. I think we qualified yeah. 10th, 12th, 14th. But he worked, kind of methodically works his way up, probably by mid-race. He's leading or maybe before, and we didn't have much trouble keeping it. And yeah. Cautions would come out, and we, you know, I think Rusty might have been our second, you know, our first, probably the biggest competitor. And I, I think we could run a few laps and get away from him. But we had this restart, and I know Rusty was thinking, okay, if I don't get him now, I'm not going to get him. Right? He's going to get away from me. Well, he dives in on us into three and, and gets and wrecks us. I don't think he did it on purpose, but he got into yeah. Harry, wrecked him. And, ah, I mean, we were in the pits. We were ripping off brake ducks and fenders <laughs> and, you know, just trying to stay on the lead lap, really. And Harry starts in the back, and he is so determined. He doesn't say anything on the radio. And he starts up through the back, and I think and he got to, to Rusty pretty quick. I thought, well, he's going to wreck him. Oh, yeah. She passed him on the outside and drove away. Wow. And here he goes, and he just marched his way up through the field until he got, got the lead. You know, again, looking at those stats, after Bristol, the rest of the season, the last, what, two and a half months of the season, you finish out of the top five. The top five just once the rest of the year. That was at Phoenix in the next to last race of the year where Harry got caught mm-hmm. up in an accident. What was the reaction of the teams in the garage? Were they trying to sneak peeks at you know under oh, yeah. the hood or you oh, know? Oh yeah, they, uh, there there must have been some well, they you know, spy versus spy stuff going on. Something going on. I mean, they really yeah. thought it. I, when I came to work for Childress after the you know a few years after this, I mean, he to this day he thinks that we were doing something else. I try to tell him the truth, and he won't. So you won't even tell RC. No, I've told him everything. I mean, I told him everything about that car. I mean, I yeah. just told you yeah. it was yeah. really yeah. the camera in and the motor stuff, which you know everybody was doing. And uh, he just won't believe. It. He thinks we had some trick thing, <laughs> but we didn't. Yeah. And everybody was looking for that. Yeah, I remember I, I overheard Rusty up in. We sat on the pole then after winning the fourth one, the next week at Wilkesboro. Right. And I happened to walk up in the NASCAR hauler maybe to get a schedule or something. I hear Rusty up in the front. Oh wow. Well, and he says, you know they're cheating. Now. They sat on the pole. He, Harry Gantt will never sit on <laughs> Okay. So did you barge in and say, no, no, no we're completely legal. out smiling, and we should have won that one. We, uh, yeah, we beat ourselves there. Yeah. We had a yeah. brake line issue, and it was just a – wasn't anything to do with the brake line. We just didn't get it tight, you know, pre No kidding. Yeah, it wow. ended up vibrating loose, and then by the end, it had leaked all the fluid out. Okay. And he had zero brakes. And wow. He said if he could have figured out how to drive a – he figured it out finally how to drive it with no brakes, but it was too late. He, he he let Earnhardt get by him. Ends up running him back down with no brakes, but to t- you know ran out of lap. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. And I got a text from Brian this week, and he said, I'm going to let you in on a little sneak preview, and I'm going to give you first dibs. Oh. He had a Bobby Helen t-shirt. Really? Oh, yeah. It wasn't the Trap Rock Industries t-shirt that I consider my holy grail or whatever. Before this podcast is over, Brian is going to find me a Bobby Helen Trap Rock Industries t-shirt. I have no Size doubt. 2X. No doubt. I'll do it. <laughs> a guy that has a Bobby Helen t-shirt, period. Has got quite an inventory. Fans have got to go check it out. So, again, follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. So, Steve, Andy Petrie breaks into racing. At Hickory Motor Speedway, he wants to be a driver, but Dale Jarrett comes along and he's got some 
financial backing, and so he gets in the ride. I think Andy wanted to drive like anybody does, and he yeah. did actually make some Bush Series starts at one point, I believe. But then Andy continued to climb the ladder up right. through the ranks and everything. And he, like I said in the intro, he made his debut on the Winston Cup circuit as a tire changer for Junior Johnson and Associates and Daryl Waltrip in 1981. And that was the year that D.W. won his first championship. Now, as you said, Andy had a lot of racing experience before he moved on to Junior Johnson. And Steve, this is what I find so amazing. Andy worked his way up through the ranks like so many others in this sport has, but... When he got the job with Junior Johnson as a tire changer on Darrell Waltrip's championship caliber team, he had never changed tires before. Isn't that something? But that's not unusual. This was a different time. You may recall that many crewmen were called weekend warriors. Not right. that Andy was that. Yeah. They, they would just work the weekends for pit stops. Otherwise, they had regular jobs. They'd fly in on race day and work the pits. This is pretty much how it went. It was not nearly as organized or job-related as it is now when you have engineers and right-side tire men and left-side tire men and all that sort of thing. Right. And they're all on a full-time basis, and they even have practices and train for the job now. wasn't like that back then. It was pretty much pick up whoever you could. Even if the guy only lasted one weekend, he right. did work for the team. Even for a championship-caliber team like that, that's what I find so incredible about this scenario but imagine this steve he gets the gig with junior and dw and his first race is going to be texas world speedway Mm -hmm. and he gets in the rig he actually rides in the rig to texas with henry benfield now that could be an entire series of podcasts uh, right there absolutely (laughs) riding on a truck with henry benfield across country and you just know, knowing Henry, like I do, that was no routine trip. Well, I can tell you this. There wasn't no moss gathering on Henry Benfield's truck. No way, no how. <laughs> no. And I can tell you the truth about that. I tried to follow him one time. Did you really? From Talladega back to the Charlotte area. I don't want to say how fast we were going <laughs> on the interstate through Atlanta. But we were flying, so much so that behind him, I pulled out a little bit, uh, blinked my lights, and got off at the next exit. (laughs) You said, you're on your own, buddy. (laughs) Man, I'm telling you. So they go out to Texas, and they have a problem, and they have to drop out of the race. So Andy doesn't get to make his debut at Texas. Then they go out to Riverside, and Andy's thinking about that first stop the whole time way how did he even perform on that first stop being so nervous and having that long to think about that's what's amazing to me yeah well apparently he did a very good job because he was still there after the race steve here is an oddball stat for you riverside that year andy petrie is performing his duties for the very first time on pit road dw sat on the pole at that race and he won on the race yeah okay Dell Earnhardt qualified second for that race and finished second. Richard Petty qualified third for that race and finished third. And Steve, Neil Bonnet qualified fourth for that race. Where don't, do you reckon he finished? Don't tell me. Fourth. <laughs> How about that? The top four finishers qualified and finished in, in the, the same, same order. There's a piece of NASCAR trivia for you. That's got to be a record. I've never heard of it before. I didn't know about this one until you reminded me. So, yeah, that's an oddball stat if ever there was one. And then Andy gets his first crew chief gig. He continues to work his way through the sport, doing better and better at each stop. And he gets his first crew chief gig with Phil Parsons. And like I said in the intro, (laughs) as soon as I start to mention their 1988 win at Talladega, he just got this great big old grin. On his face. Uh, I wonder why. Well, let's just say this. He would not say exactly what went on with that race car, but he did allow this. He said that it was a lot more fun, quote unquote, fun to be a crew chief because of the leeway that you had at the time. Right. And then he said you had to play the game in order to be competitive. Oh, and he wasn't the only one. Oh, no. These were Wild and woolly times for NASCAR as far as competition went because the teams could get away with so much. And that's not because the NASCAR inspectors weren't diligent. 
they didn't have the technology that they do today. Right. So they a lot of things could get around them. And Bud Moore had the best description of the whole thing when he told me one time. He said, I wake up in the middle of the night and I write down what I'm thinking of. And by the morning, I've got 10 things to do to that car that I know are going to help us. Now, NASCAR will catch seven of them, and I'm still three to good. Yeah, you're still three to the good. this particular time and the circumstances therein are why Andy could do what he did. And then, Steve, Andy went on and became Harry Gantz crew chief, and Harry at that time was one of the more popular drivers in the sport. I think Harry was very popular because people could see themselves in him. He wasn't a... Glamour model, poster boy, straight out of GQ. He He was a working man. He was the everyman. Yeah. Exactly right, the working man. The team hit a stretch midway through the season, and Steve, they couldn't buy a top 10 finish. But then came Darlington and the Southern 500 in September. And evidently in the garage before the race, Andy was kind of talking to Harry, and he said, you know, we've been a one win a year team. But if we're ever going to talk championship, we have to win multiple races. That was in the garage at Darlington. And what happened, Steve? Well, guess who won at Darlington? Harry Gantt. That's right. And And then the next week, and the next week, week, and and the the next next week. week. (laughs) So evidently, you know, it was as simple as that. Just mentioned to Harry, we need to win more races a year. And Harry's like, okay, I'll go out and do it. So (laughs) I think Andy and... Harry both have been a little more forthcoming with what was going on with their car. Andy told me that the rear end housing was cambered, and that was something that not a lot of teams were doing at that time. It's something that they had been working on with that car and that setup throughout that season, but they finally hit on something that actually worked. And then also they had been working on a new cylinder head and adding a half inch of material or so to the cylinder heads and angling them and everything. And they got the very first set of new heads at Darlington. So the new heads, the Cambridge rear end, Darlington, and boom. Four straight wins. Four straight wins. He also won, I guess, two or three straight Bush Series races in that very same stretch. So it was they were on point. Uh, absolutely. And I, here's an interesting tidbit. The next year, in 1992, Bill Elliott won four races in a row for Junior Johnson. One reason why, cambered, cambered rear, rear yeah. ends. Same yeah. thing. So it worked for Bill Elliott in 1992. It worked for Harry Gant in 1991. So, you know, a team hits on a particular... I know you don't like this term, especially not from Bill Elliott, but he hit on the right combination. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. And, Steve, even more than that is, according to Andy, in that four-race win streak, they ran the same car and the same engine in all four races. Now, that is an incredible fact, to do it with the same car and the same engine. I guarantee you the top teams of the day – didn't use the same car and certainly didn't use the same engine. So that's remarkable. You know, you had Darlington, which is an intermediate. You had Richmond, which was a short track. You had Dover, which was somewhere between an intermediate and a short track. And then you had Martinsville, which is the prototype for a short track. track. So the tracks weren't necessarily Daytona, Talladega, and Martinsville, but they were still different enough that in today's climate, you would certainly be bringing different chassis to each race. and everything to every race. Even back then, even the um, middle-of-the-road teams had at least two cars. One was a big track car and one was a short track car. Not the same car at all. So you can see that what Andy did back this time was, to me, still remarkable. Steve, the May 17th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene covered the race at Nashville Fairgrounds Speedway in my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. I can remember so clearly going to the Nashville Sounds ballgame. They were the double-A team of the Cincinnati Reds at the time. And the track was maybe, I don't know, two or three miles from, from Greer Stadium where the sounds played their baseball. And when the race was in town, you could hear the cup cars just going around that racetrack. And it was so loud. Mm. 
even from where we were at Greer Stadium. And I could not imagine at that time ever wanting to be a part of that. <laughs> you know, I was a big baseball fan at the time. I ate, slept, drank Pete Rose, Cincinnati Reds. Yeah. And of course, at that time, 1979, he had gone to the dark side and played for the Philadelphia Phillies. It was a uh. dark day in my life when he signed <laughs> with the Phillies. But at that time, I can remember going to the baseball games at Greer Stadium and hearing all the commotion over at the Fairgrounds Racetrack, and I could not imagine ever being a part of that. Well, to racing fans, that racket at Nashville is music to their ears. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Music City, oh, that, that was pretty nice. Yeah, I yeah, see what you did. I didn't know what I did there. <laughs> so, officially, in this race, officially, Steve, Kel Yarbrough beat Richard Petty to the finish line by 2.8 seconds, right. and Bobby Allison was in third place. The rundown. That's <laughs> yeah. what the rundown states. That's what the history books will always Some have. Some people beg to differ. <laughs> However, <laughs> Richard Petty led twice for 164 laps. That was more than any other driver. But, Steve, who led the second most laps that day? You won't believe him. Oh, this is so cool. Who led the second most laps that night? J.D. McDuffie. J.D. McDuffie led four times for a total of 110 laps. Running on McCreary tires. Running on McCreary's. Yeah. Oh. That had to be. Yes, sir. J.D. McDuffie's high point of his career. Now, I know he won a pole at right. Dover. Yeah. But as far as competition going, this one was his high water mark. And I tell you what, it wasn't any fluke that he was out there in the lead. He had a tough, tough car. Yeah, he did. Where the controversy kind of got its genesis. Lap 52, Carol Yarbrough and J.D. McDuffie made contact on the front stretch and Carol spun backwards towards the pit area and nearly hit the pit wall, J.D. was able to keep going. He, I don't guess he actually spun. And then a little more than 20 laps later, he was back. Back in the lead. Back in the lead. Let's just say that. J.D. <laughs> McDuffie was back in the lead. That is just a beautiful thing to, you know, to even hear. You know, J.D. said that uh, <laughs> uh, he got hit in a rear quarter panel by Kale. Right. But managed to keep going, he said. Uh, didn't, he didn't know exactly what happened to Kale. At all. He just kept going. But as you said, Kale just spun. Right. Now, he's got to lose the lap there. Well, Kale actually had to pit because he had spun and flat spotted the tires. He was quoted in Gene Granger's story. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? Gene Granger's story, he was quoted as saying, I was thinking, oh, no, here we go again. I thought I was going to wreck the car. I flat spotted all four tires. One went flat, so we changed the right side. But the left side tires were like running on square wheels. That put me a tire change behind everybody. Yeah. And a tire changes a lap. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kel got back on the lead lap, supposedly, (laughs) on lap 170. But then on lap 178, eight laps later, he blew a right rear tire and he spun while trying to enter pit road. So... That's two spins. That's two tire stops. That's two laps. That's two laps. That cost him at least one lap for this one incident. Yeah, absolutely. But then he supposedly got it back on lap 296 when he passed J.D. McDuffie (laughs) to, (laughs) to unlap himself. The caution came out on lap 337. Kel pitted again and somehow managed to get the lead the very next lap while under yellow, and he led the rest of the way. Supposedly. 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 Okay. So Kale said in the paper, we changed all four tires. That was the first time we ever changed all four on a short track, but we felt we had to. I needed to get even with the others on tires. Besides, we felt we didn't have anything to lose. Our car outclassed the rest of them. If we hadn't had those problems, we could have lapped the field three times. Well, so they get to the finish line. Kale's 2.8 seconds ahead. Richard Petty finishes second. And then basically all heck breaks loose in the garage after the race. Now, meantime, J.D. McDuffie also had to make a late pitch stop in which he changed four tires. Now, he didn't want to. So he radioed back to the crew saying, hey, guys, can we make it the rest of the way? And they said no. So he had no choice but to go in. And by making that pit stop, he wound up in fifth place. Still mighty good for J.D. McDuffie. Yes, sir. 
Richard Petty felt that he was way ahead of Kel. Richard said after the race, we won the race, but we got paid for second. <laughs> we had Kel three laps down. A blind man could see that he was at least two laps down. He lost more than a lap when he tangled with J.D., when he spun out at the entrance of pit road, Kale lost 46 seconds in getting back on the track. We were turning laps at 22 seconds. What does that tell you? That tells me that Richard had a good case. Yeah, I believe Richard had a good case. And Kyle, 1979, he's, what, 19 years old at the yeah. time, still had not made his Winston Cup nope, debut, would not make it for another few months or so at Talladega. But he was evidently pretty angry. After the race, he was asked by Gene Granger after the race if he thought Kel was a lap down at the finishing. And Kyle replied, don't talk to me. I'm a sore loser. <laughs> <laughs> he made his point, didn't he? He most certainly did that. And Richard said again after the race, talking about Kyle, he said, he's just like me. He knew we had won. He went to the scoring stand and told them how it was. They couldn't show him how Kel made up all that time. They wouldn't check it lap by lap. I didn't go to the scoring stand because I would have gotten mad. Bud Moore was upset too. He knew what the score was. They weren't questioning me. They thought I had won the race and that Bobby was second. Well, the scoring system at that time could best be described as somewhat antiquated, to say the least. As you know, each team had a score. A score went into the scores box and kept track of his or her driver's laps, marking them down, essentially, as they went, you know, went around the track. Now, uh, this lends itself somewhat to human error, and it's not the first time NASCAR's had a scoring controversy. It's one of the few times that NASCAR flat out refused to recheck it, which they did. And I don't understand the reason behind that. But still, the system was flawed. It did not have anything close to electronic scoring or computerized scoring or whatever you want to call it now that such a thing probably could not happen. But still, all in all, this is the human error. You know, it would be one thing to score a race at Daytona or Talladega where the laps are a little bit longer in length and it right. takes, what, 49 seconds yeah. or whatever it is to run a lap. But at a short track, if they're running 22-second laps, you've barely written down the lap time before you have to do the next one. Yeah, the way this is, that's the way the system worked at a short track. Now, if you went and got a Coke, you could miss something. Uh, oh, you couldn't do that. No. No. That, no. Was it, that, that's how quick it was. And because it was that quick, I'm feeling like that's the reason why human error was not an uncommon thing. And I would also imagine that maybe if you were a little more unscrupulous, you might be able to fudge a little bit <laughs> and maybe write down an extra number when you had well, an Well, there is that. Yeah. So the race at Nashville was obviously very controversial, and there was a lot to talk about. But then this issue also had a story about how negotiations had broken down between Charlotte and David Pearson to run the upcoming World 600. And, of course, earlier in 1979, David Pearson had parted ways with the Wood Brothers, and we'd talked about that before right. on the show. But the World 600 was a big race for the hometown crowd, you know, where most of the shops were located. Right. And it was a big thing to have David Pearson in the race because he was a big name sure. that would draw some people to the race. Well, David Pearson was known for winning pole positions. How many had he won in a row? Was it 11? Yeah, 11 or yeah. 12, something he like that. He had won 11 straight poles going into that race. So he was a magnet for Charlotte. Yeah, so Humpy Wheeler had evidently worked out a deal with Hoss Ellington to field a car for David. I don't know exactly how Donnie Allison would have felt about that, <laughs> but Humpy had evidently worked it out with Hoss. But David wanted some show money as well, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> show me the money. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily a bad thing for him to ask for that show money because he's going to sell tickets, yeah. and he is David Pearson. And David Pearson said in this issue, in this article, money is the thing. I won't be there unless he offers me more money. He's about halfway there. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> now, Humpy was quoted in the story as saying that he thought that David wanted approximately – Fifteen thousand to twenty-five thousand dollars to run that race. Well, no, I can nineteen seventy-nine. Yeah, I can understand Humpy being a little skitterish about that. That is a lot of money for 
1979. In fact, yeah. they were racist. If you won a race, you didn't get that much. Fifteen to twenty-five thousand. Let's just call it twenty thousand dollars. If Humpy pays David Pearson twenty thousand dollars, guess what happens? He's got to pay Richard Petty right. twenty thousand right. dollars. He's got to pay Cal Yarbrough twenty thousand. He's got to pay Bobby Allison twenty thousand dollars for Humpy. You can kind of see where he's coming from, but at the same time, if you're David Pearson, well, you, you got to get that money. Yeah, going yeah. for the big bucks. But again, in defensive Humpy, like you said, even if he gave David Pearson a reasonable amount of money, he might be faced with doing that very same thing to a whole big handful of drivers, and that is not a good financial situation. Humpy was quoted in the story as saying, I got David the best possible, most competitive ride available, a Hoss Ellington car. I gave him a chance to win some of our $363,000 purse. Well, that's a whole completely different issue there. $363,000 purse. Okay. Uh And then Humpy continued and said, I offered him a reasonable deal. It was more money than I've ever offered anybody to race at Charlotte. Well, I can believe that. I can. Why wasn't there a guarantee in place that a person like David Pearson would be in that race, because certainly today it's pretty much a guarantee that the stars they of the had sport no guarantees are going to show up. Yeah, they had no such guarantee, no such thing as charters, all that stuff. It was still a situation where drivers were independent contractors, and they pretty much had to go out and fight on their own to get any kind of extra money. Now they were on plan money that had been right. created, you know, also around seventy. You talking about the winner's circle? Yeah, that and okay. the plan money for yeah. the independent okay. drivers. Right. That money was in place. So they had that. Only thing about it was you had to run every race. You had to try to qualify for every race to get it. David Pearson didn't run the entire schedule. Most of the 70s and into the 80s he never did. So he was his own independent contractor and could ask for what he thought he was worth. Steve, that was a different time Uh, and a different place. (laughs) So much different. And to prove that point, I went through the letters to the editor section just because I think they are so interesting at times, so funny at times, so maddening at times. (laughs) But reader George V. Richards responded to a letter that had been printed in the May 3rd, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene from Francis Swain, of Durham, North Carolina. Now, I went back and, <laughs> and I read Francis's manifesto oh, that was in that May 3rd <laughs> issue, and it took up literally the entire letters to the editor section on page two, and then it jumped to page 14, <laughs> where it continued for another column and a half or so. And the best way to summarize it is this. Francis was a Kel Yarborough fan who thought that Kel Yarbrough could do absolutely no wrong and that everybody else, Richard Petty and Daryl Walter, chief among them, could go jump in the lake. <laughs> That's the best and nicest way to summarize yeah. her yeah. So letter. I assume by now the listeners are getting the gist of this letter. You can pretty much get the gist of what Francis was trying to say in this paragraph. If Big Jealous Mouth Petty would tell the truth and not lies, and if Big Mouth Crybaby Waltrip would do the same, this mess would end. But knowing Waltrip, he just wants Kel out of racing so he can have a better chance. But he can run his mouth all he wants to about Kel, hoping he'll quit racing. But Kel's not (laughs) stupid. They are. I, I, I don't know why she held back. <laughs> and I love, Steve, I love the editor's note at the end of Francis's letter. It said, because she pleaded with us so strongly, we have printed Miss Swain's impassioned and somewhat one-sided letter. Somewhat. Uh, somewhat one-sided. Now, I think that was a little sarcasm, maybe <laughs> creeping through on the editor's part. But the note continues. It says, but in the future... Please limit your letters to no more than two legible pages as our typesetters get paid by the hour. (laughs) So I can only imagine this letter to the editor coming in via the U.S. postal system. I can see it. I guarantee you it was an inch thick (laughs) that she had written. I don't know how many pages or whatever, but she definitely got her 
point across. So, well, being loyal to Kale was not really an unusual thing back then, especially when it came to Daryl Waltrip, because they'd been embroiled in a controversy for a couple of years by this time. Well, Steve, I think the most shocking thing about Francis's note is that love and respect for Richard Petty was not universal. Uh, yeah. Now, I knew, in theory, that he and Bobby Allison necessarily didn't exactly no. get along All the way back at various to 19, points. Yeah, 1972. And I knew, in theory, that Bobby Allison fans maybe didn't like Richard Petty. But to see it in print, to see somebody give Richard Petty in print a hard time was kind of jarring. It really was. So George V. Richards and Judy Sanders of Glade Spring, Virginia, respond in this issue, in the May 17th issue of Grand National Scene. And George said, in part, Miss Swain claims that she has been going to races for 10 years. All I got to say is she must have had a hell of a poor seat (laughs) if she never saw Kel do anything wrong. In 10 years' time, I bet you there is not one race car driver who has done no wrong. So that's kind of a reasoned right. approach. You know, right. Every race car driver has messed up at some point. Now, Steve, what I think is so interesting, Francis Swain's letter was printed in the May 3rd issue of Grand National Scene. This is the May 17th issue of Grand National Scene. There were more responses in the May 24th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene from July Delahaye of Leonardtown, Maryland. And I'm assuming that that maybe was a misprint and it was Judy Delahaye of Leonardtown, Maryland. <laughs> misprint in Grand National Scene. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. But then the week after that, there was a response from Teddy Lee Clark of Jonesboro, Tennessee. And then finally, there were three more responses to Francis in the June 7th. 1979 issue. So Steve, catch the dates of these issues. May 3rd was Francis's letter, and all the way to June 7th, they're arguing about racing, and that's more than a month before (laughs) all this dies down. I tell you, uh, that's just the way it is back then. If you were a racing fan and you had something to say, you wrote scene. Yes, you did. you post on Facebook or Twitter. Or Instagram or or Snapchat or wherever. It's all done almost instantly. This is the way it was for fans to sound off. Big difference, don't you think? You know, today the responses are instantaneous, and I'm not so sure that that's necessarily a good thing because I think debates on Twitter, on social media, can spin out of control pretty doggone easily. That's the danger to me that somebody can read the debate going on on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is, and then seize one small part of it and go off on a tangent that leads to another series of of posts that have nothing to do with that particular issue. Uh, I've seen that more than once. Hey, I'm Dylan Hart Jr., and you're listening to the Scene Ball Podcast. Steve, we didn't mention it in the intro, but we've got big news for our listeners. You and I are going to participate in a little bit of a playoff challenge. Now that the NASCAR playoffs have started, and yeah, we can get into that debate about how you and I feel about the playoffs, (laughs) me especially. At some point, Steve, in the next few weeks, I'm going to unveil my master plan of how NASCAR needs to go about the playoffs. Oh, this is going to be profound. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Trust me. (laughs) Dennis Punch, are you out there listening? (laughs) So at some point over the next few weeks, I will unveil my master plan for the playoffs and it will be, let's just say, revolutionary. I tend to doubt it. I think I have oh. another word for it, but you go ahead. No, no, I'm a big boy. What's your word for it? Phony. Oh, come on now. Okay, all right, okay, all right. So you and I, over the next few weeks, are going to engage in a bit of a playoff contest. I'm game for that. Okay, the drivers who have qualified for the playoffs, you're going to pick one each week, I'm going to pick one each week. And the points that that driver scores will be our points. For the week. For the week. Right. Okay? Okay. So. Now, 
What's the contest? What's the prize going to be? Well, let's call it a wager. Shall we? Okay. I I like that. What's the wager? We haven't come up with it yet. No, not yet, but uh, let's put it this way. Uh, One of us is going to be embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So, going into Las Vegas, who is your pick? Oh, I'm going to go way, way out on a limb here. Kyle Busch. You like that? Okay. All right. So if you pick Kyle Busch, you're going strong right out of the box. Now, I say that we can't pick a driver more than once throughout this whole process. Okay. Sounds fine to me. Okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. My pick for Vegas is going to be... Jimmy Johnson. No, wait a minute. (laughs) Oh, you went there, did you? <laughs> okay, my pick for Vegas is going to be Chase Elliott. Well, now that's not bad. Chase Elliott, okay? I'm thinking I might save my really big guns for the end. Ooh. Well, I okay. see you already strategizing oh, on yeah. this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, all right. So you have Kyle Busch. I have Chase Elliott. Come on, Chase. Come on, man. You can do it. Kyle, you're at home, baby. You're at home. Kyle, go for it. So follow us on Twitter, at The Scene Vault. If you have any questions or comments, email us at scenevault at yahoo.com. And as always, thank you to Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Thank you to Jim Beaver and the Down and Dirty Radio Network. Thank you to Joe Estep. Thank you to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you to Brian Kelb. And thank you, Steve. Now, I don't want to hear no crying next week. (laughs) No. You'll be the one crying. (laughs) And and Jimmy, you might be out of the playoffs, but you're certainly in the Hall of Fame.